We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McEachran, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. Recently, I started playing piano, reading music, learning music theory. It has been as if I'm getting a map to the world of music, one that I have always really lived in. Music is everywhere and has always been around me. I feel a bit of the same way about the world of poetry. It is something I have been exposed to all through childhood, middle school, and high school, and even now as a creative adult. But it is something I never fully understood. I just existed with it. This episode's guest is a poet who is also a personal friend, a friend I feel comfortable asking all of my poetry questions without fear of judgment. Frederick Spears grew up in Blacksburg, Virginia, the home of Virginia Tech. It was a liberal college town in the middle of rural, conservative Virginia. Since our childhood is the foundation of our creative selves, I asked Fred to talk about where he grew up, a blue dot in the middle of a red sea. Uh, that, that's right, a little blue dot in the middle of, of a red sea. Blue Ridge Mountains, I mean, can't complain as a kid, you know, and also had a world-class five-story college library that I could hide out in. So I could hide in the mountains or I could hide in the library. We learned sort of the culture and the language so that we could um, not be identified as, as being from Blacksburg so we wouldn't be beat up. The next town over, Christiansburg, in the summers, they'd have book burnings uh, in the center of town. That was qu- quite a contrast. A town in <laughs> the next town over would, you know, burn books they didn't like. And then um, in our town, uh, you know, uh, uh, an internationally renowned um, technical uh, college. I think like most, you know, queer kids growing up, you realize it sooner than most people think, right? You realize it at a very, very young age. I remember in first grade and my mom was taking me to, uh, it was a kind of like craft store to get a frame to put the picture of my first grade girlfriend. Um, I think her name was Kara. <laughs> I remember distinctly you know, looking at the very cheap plastic uh, frames that I could afford with my, my allowance, it was the same frame and, and there were different pictures inside. There were different stock photos, right? There was, a, there was a beautiful man, there was a beautiful woman. I remember very sort of, you know, flowing big hair. And then there was a, a, a sailboat, but it was the same frame, three different pictures. <laughs> and, and, and I looked at this and I just, and, and I knew that I wanted the one with the man in it. And I, and even stranger than that, I knew that I couldn't tell anyone before I knew that I wanted it. Like it, there was something that jumped out in front of that desire that I had to have that picture of that man. Um, that stopped me from saying anything to, to my mom. You know, growing up in a, in a small town, can't tell my parents. I think I went through all kinds of, you know, different, um, you know, different phases in my life, I'm sure, like most people. Um, uh, you know, and I really didn't, I didn't come out to my, my parents or, or my friends until I was in college. Um, so, yeah, that was not a, a, a safe place um, in, in the 80s and 90s in rural Virginia, even in a college town, was not a safe place um, to be a gay kid. There's this, there's this poem that I like from uh, Frank O'Hara, 
um, the poems titled um, Autobiograph Autobiographia Literaria. When I was a child, I played by myself in a corner of the schoolyard all alone. I hated dolls and I hated games. Animals were not friendly and birds flew away. If anyone was looking for me, I hid behind a tree or cried out, I am an orphan. And here I am, the center of all beauty, writing these poems. Imagine. You've got this voice, this poet, who I think I, I see a lot of myself in as a kid. I, I like beautiful things, but the, the culture, the masculine culture in Southwestern Virginia was very strong. And so we were encouraged to hate or want to destroy those beautiful things. Um, and so yeah, <laughs> that left me sort of uh, conflicted in this idea of like, I hated dolls, I hated games, animals were not friendly, they flew away. This, this sort of really kind of voice that's pushing you away. Um, and yet he's writing this, this poem and saying he's at the center of all this beauty. Can you imagine that? That contradiction between sort of, you know, who we say we are, what we say we want, and um, what comes of it. it sort of gets at the, that the heart of the process that you were, I think, getting at when, when you were like, let's start with childhood. One thing that I read that you said is, I have always loved words and how they shape the world. Did your brain activate around words when you first started learning how to read? Can you tell me about where that happened? I think for me, it wasn't really even reading in books. It was um, more the, 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 the melodies I would hear in, um, in, in, in speech, in drama, in the kinds of uh, things that I, I did get to be exposed to. So it was spoken word that was the first thing that excited I, I you? Think it's true. I think that's true for everyone. When we're born, we, we sort of have the ability to absorb whatever the, the local... Uh, rules of the game are in terms of the language. And one of the ways that we, we learn those rules is not actually by learning the rules, it's by hearing the melodies and the patterns that uh, we hear all around us. And we infer from those, um, those patterns meaning um, and, and you know, absolute meaning and also relative meaning. Um, so, so, you know, our brains are very, very well equipped to seek out those kinds of patterns at a very early age. There's a professor I studied with who said that, you know, that there's a proto, there's almost like this proto poem uh, that everyone in their adult life goes through where they're, you know, walking around the, the house going keys, 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 <laughs> keys. And he says, this is a good kind of proto poem where you're repeating the word, trying to conjure the thing that you're looking for. Um, and it's, it's about this kind of ritual that you're, you're engaging with. And it has, you know, nothing to do with meaning. It has, <laughs> of course, it's not going to have any supernatural powers of, of actually conjuring the, the keys. But yet there's something sort of basic and, and inborn about that um, need to, to connect um, speech and patterns to, to the real world. I think we all go through uh, as kids. Maybe, maybe a difference is that I decided to pay attention to it over, say, some of the other kinds of, of art that uh, um, some of my friends chose. I've hardly ever read something silently to myself and not heard it, also heard it. Um, 
I think, you know, there are lots of different types of poetry out there, just like there are in, in terms of any kind of art. There's some poetry that's more visual, some that's more abstract, some that sort of confound the, the normal process of speech. Um, I, I'm ten, I tend to be drawn to the kind of poetry that is um, closer to music, closer to song. This is a big surprise to me because I never thought of poetry as something that should be read out loud. I mean, that makes complete sense. So this is what happened. I got your books and I read your poetry and I was enjoying them, but I was not reading them. I was not speaking them. I was reading them. But then I found on your website, you were reading them. Um, so this so far a field book, um, you reading them and that kind of changed everything in hearing oh, yeah? the book. Oh, yes. And then I went back and I reread them, but I, I, I spoke them and it mm -hmm. changed everything. So that was, so thank you for that. I am now going to, <laughs> as I move forward in life, uh, in experiencing poetry, I am definitely going to be reading it out loud. I, I, I love that. And I love that you shared that with me. When did poetry actually become a thing for you? At what age? I know that the first thing that I was exposed to as poetry would have been like Dr. Seuss type of things. <laughs> you know, sure. that's like poetry, um, which, you know, I thought was clever and everything. But at some point, the stuff that I was being given to read was no longer that. It was actually stories. It was mm. Dick and Jane or whatever the stuff mm -hmm. is, where it's actually sentences and all of that. It sounds like you may have gotten on a track separate from that moving to short stories, novels, et cetera. You were kind of on this poetry track. When did that start? Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to put it. So Shel Silverstein, um, right? You must have heard, heard his poems. Um, sure. The Giving um, right? Tree? So he did The the Giving Tree. And where I the think, sidewalk ends. The, where the sidewalk ends. Um, I cannot go to school today, said little Peggy Amakay. I have the measles and the mumps, a gash, a rash, and purple bumps. My mouth is wet. My throat is dry. I'm going blind in my right eye, <laughs> right? I remember that from when I was, I don't know, five, <laughs> when, I, when I heard that record for the first time. Um, and there seemed to me a, a kind of power in in poetry, even in that kind of very sing-songy, um, you know, children's um, uh you know, poetry written for children that, you know, continued to, to interest me. Um, but it wasn't really until high school that I realized that, that there were people who were like um, writing poetry for adults. Mm. And I, I learned about Robert Frost. I learned about Wallace Stevens and Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson. And um, I, I was, my, my brain lit up. It seemed to me a conversation um, that was happening behind the scenes I wanted to hear you know, by really, really interesting people. They were trying to put into words, you know, experience or thoughts, or they were, you know, working with language to to shape those experiences and thoughts in new ways, to change the language, to change the way that we see the world. Poetry seemed to me the kind of writing of writing, that it, it seemed to be the mm. kind of, of blueprint that, enabled all other kind of writing to be possible. It's where innovation could come out of, it's where things could be challenged and made new, it's where uh, things could also be um, put to be remembered by other people that we would never meet um, and be brought forward 
um, by translating people from from Greek um, or Roman um, or from Russian, uh, from other cultures, other times, um, that you could talk to these people. You could pass notes in class, if you will. All of it works with patterns. All of it works with uh, rules, whether you're breaking those rules, bending them, or or creating new ones uh, for people to to hear. So you're you're working very intensely and intently with with language in, in sort of a, the same way that like you know a visual artist is working with with color you're you're working with it in a, in a sort of a different state of consciousness than most people as a painter i have this skill so to speak with managing value which is like the difference between dark and light, the whitest white and the darkest dark hue, which is where you are around the color wheel, whether you're red, orange, yellow, green, and then saturation, which is whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, bright red all the way down to dull red, all the way to gray. And it's like this three-dimensional, four-dimensional thing that you're managing. And like, that's what an artist is using. And they have this skill that they know how to use all of these things to bring it on the canvas. And I was thinking, well, that's kind of what a poet is doing, but with words. That that leads to another Frank O'Hara poem, which I'll, I, I want to read real quickly because I think, I, I think you'll appreciate this poem. And uh, it, this is Why I'm Not a Painter by Frank O'Hara. <laughs> okay. I'm not a painter. I'm a poet. Why? I think I would rather be a painter, but I am not. Well, for instance, Mike Goldberg is starting a painting. I drop in. Sit down and have a drink, he says. I drink. We drink. I look up. You have sardines in it. Yes, it needed something there. Oh. I go, and the days go by, and I drop in again. The painting is going on, and I go, and the days go by. I drop in. The painting is finished. Where's sardines? All that's left is just letters. It was too much, Mike says. But me? One day I'm thinking of a color, orange. I write a line about orange. Pretty soon it is a whole page of words, not lines. Then another page. There should be so much more, not of orange, of words, of how terrible orange is and life. Days go by. It is even in prose. I am a real poet. My poem is finished and I haven't mentioned orange yet. It's 12 poems. I call it Oranges. And one day in the gallery, I see Mike's painting called Sardines. You talked about being exposed to these poets and it opened up the universe to you. When did it shift to you creating poetry? And what was that like? Yeah, I think I, through high school and college, wrote poetry. Um, I would imitate, um, you know, the, the poets that I liked, that I would read. It, I felt joy. Um, it, felt, um, it felt challenging. It felt, um, it felt good. I felt good about myself. Um, you know, that's, <laughs> and I also sort of felt like this is something that I could get better at if I, if I, you know, if I had more time. Did you have anything else in your life that you were doing that made you feel that way? 
Or was this like the first time that you were doing something where you felt like this is my thing? That's a great question. Um, I think, I think it helped shape the, it helped shape my interior thought um, and my own sort of self-reflection of, of who I am in a way that other kinds of things I enjoyed didn't like being with friends, super enjoyable are playing rugby together, super enjoyable. Um, but those didn't help sort of shape my interior landscape of, of who I am in a way that, that poetry um, did and, and does. Reading so far afield, uh, there's a lot of, so this is a book of poems and I think it's, it looked like it's sort of classified as gay themed. Is that, is that accurate? That is. Yeah. Okay. I didn't, I saw that with some of it, but not with all of them. It definitely looks like you are processing things from your own experience with your poetry. And first of all, is that, is that accurate? Um, I think so. There is sort of an inclination to think of poetry as uh, sort of an outpouring of emotion or confession. And I would draw a line there. I would, I would say, um, you know, in order for it to be art, it needs to be transformed. It can't simply be Fred's diary that you're reading, right? It can't just be, you know, my own sort of personal experience. It has to be other people's personal experience that I imagine and that I try to embody um, in, in words. So um, I don't think there's any escaping the autobiographical nature of, of my writing, um, but most of the um, poems that I write, and increasingly so, um, are, you know, they, they have a very strong lyric eye, um, but the eye is, is a fable often. It's, it's, it's a myth that I've invented. It's a vehicle that I've invented for myself. Um, and I bring the reader along. I'm assuming that you see yourself as an observer of the world around you and less of a participant in everything that's going on. Is that, is that accurate? I think so. Yeah. When did you, cause I just realized this about myself mm -hmm. that I was an observer at the, at the youngest, youngest age. Yeah. When did you realize that about yourself? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting and it probably has something to do with the fact that we were, you know, that we, that we were born gay, mm. right? That we're, 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 we're standing on the outside of society, even if, even when we're in the middle of it. Yeah. Even if no one can tell, you know, that we're gay, yeah. they are, uh, we are, we are constantly sort of having this, this meta skin around us of <laughs> these, these eyes that are, are looking for clues everywhere. Um, and, you know, listening for tone and listening for patterns of speech that um, can give you a hint, is this person friendly or is this going to be, is this, yeah. is this person going to hurt me? In a way that, you know, other, other kids don't have to go through that uh, sort of trial by fire. It's a terrible way to sort of create an artist, but, you know, it's, it's, it certainly works. Yeah, that's, that's so true. That's so true. It's like that, um, um, well, a couple things. It's that emotional quotient where you're paying mm. attention to the dynamics in, yeah. in the room between people. 
um, I was always completely attuned to all of that as yep. the youngest kid. I, I remember in first grade, I know the personality landscape of everybody in my first grade class, like how yeah. everyone interacted. And the other thing that relates to that is I remember being very young and hearing people, you know, when I was young, people didn't talk about gay, gay people. Uh, like gay wasn't a thing, right. but occasionally it would come up. And I remember I was really young. I was probably like six years old. And I remember people talking about gay people in a very negative, terrible, disparaging way. And these were nice people. Right. These were nice right. people that I right. liked. These were people that were smart, that I respected in every other way. And that's when I became an observer because I realized, mm -hmm. oh, this world that I thought everybody had all put together, right? this is like wrong. And I'm like six. And I know <laughs> yep. like this is totally wrong and nobody yep. knows it. Mm -hmm. So little six-year-old Ricky is, mm. and I knew that I knew it and nobody else knew it. And that kind of turned me and into an observer. Very, yeah. That's a very seminal moment of, of knowledge where you don't just know something, but you know that you know something that other people don't know and that they don't know that you know. Correct. And that there's a theory of mind that happens when, 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 when you put that all together and at the age of six, right? Fred, thank you so much. It was wonderful reconnecting with you. And uh, I feel like I have been personally transformed as a as it relates to poetry and my relationship to it. And I think that people listening to this, uh, probably many of them will feel the same way. I, I hope so. And I really love what you're doing, Rick. I love the curiosity that animates um, this series that you're putting together. And I looked at Look forward to, to, to hearing more um, from your archives and the, and the new ones to come. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.